Today in the Catholic Wire, we're going to talk about a revelation, what are the sources of revelation, why Sola Scriptura makes no sense at all, and we're going to cover some commentaries uh, or reply to some commentaries that we received for the last video regarding the Vatican accepting transgenderism. At the end of the program, we're also going to have an indulgence prayer so that you can get out of this show with a few years less of purgatory. This is the Catholic Wire. You are listening to The Catholic Wire. Hello, my friends, and welcome back. I am your host, Father Carlos Cepeda. And in this video, we're going to discuss, cutting right to the chase, what are the two sources of revelation? You might know this already, but stick around. Maybe there will be some interesting things that you didn't know. Um, Protestants, uh, Christians, quote-unquote, Lutheran, Calvinists, most of them hold to the true the axiom of um, sola scriptura, that the only source of revelation, the only place where you can tell what God has taught, is the Bible itself, none else, none other. Uh, Catholics, on the other hand, know that there are two sources of revelation. One would be scripture itself, and the other one would be tradition. Now, in the previous video, as I've done in other places, I was questioning some of the things that are coming from the Vatican. I was questioning, um, you know, Rome accepting, for example, the, the baptism of transgender people, or having them as sponsors or as, uh, as parents, quote-unquote, and the reason why I do this is not because I don't like it or it's just because it's my personal opinion. I do it because it's against revelation. It's against what the teaching of the church has always been, what the, what the teaching that we find in Holy Scripture or in tradition. Now, why is it that... Well, first of all, let's explain tradition. What is tradition precisely? Tradition comes from the Latin word tradere, which means to pass on. You know, when I have something and I pass it on to someone, this is tradere. I'm passing it on. So the word tradition is the things that have been passed on to us from our Lord Jesus Christ, through the apostles, through the bishops, through the priests, to us. Is every, everything tradition that my mom or my dad told me or my father told me or my priest tells me? Because, for example, if I go to a Vatican II church now, the priest will tell me, well, we give communion in the hand. Is that tradition? Or is it tradition, for example, well, you know, the priest is facing the people, and this happens sometime in the past over there. Or it happened, you know, there's a church in Rome that has an altar facing the people. So that's tradition. How do you tell what's tradition from what's simply an isolated custom? Well, that's the key. St. Vincent of Lerin, or rather Vincent of Lerin, in his uh, book, The Comunitorium, it's a, it's a pretty old book from the 5th century, if I remember correctly, he speaks of the conditions that we find in true tradition. It's something that is believed at all times, in all places, by everyone. That comes from Jesus Christ, from the apostles, and it's been, it's been believed from that time till now, at all times. That's believed everywhere, in Germany, in England, in Rome, in Italy, in Spain. Obviously, we're talking about the majority, right? And that is believed by all, meaning that there was no moment where 
you know, the Pope said, no, this is not true, or the majority of the bishops said this is not true, but is believed by all, at all times, in all places, from Jesus Christ. Those three conditions have to apply, and that's tradition. And that's why you say, well, no, tradition is not to be give communion in the hand, because that wasn't done at all times. Actually, it was never done. Even in the beginning, it wasn't done in the hand, it was done in a linen. Uh, or, you know, to, for the priest to face the people. Not at all times, not in all places. Is not tradition. Tradition then is a part of revelation that comes from God himself. It comes from Jesus Christ, and we keep it since then. An example of tradition is Lent. You know, the fasting during Lent is something that comes from the tradition of the apostles. Another example is to keep the Sunday as, this, as the Lord's Day, something that comes from the apostles as well, from our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in the Bible as well, it's found in the Bible, but it's mo it mostly comes from tradition. Uh, many other things come from tradition like that. Okay, having said this, you know, I, in the comments in the Spanish video, there were many people comparing me to Luther, and they were saying, well, you're just like Luther, you know, because Luther, what he did is, uh, and they were saying that as a praise, by the way, uh, they were saying, well, you're just like Luther. Luther, at his time, he rebelled against what the Pope was teaching because he was wrong. And uh, now we call him heretic, but he was good. And they say, well, you're going to be the heretics of the future. <laughs> and I'm like, well, thank you for that. Uh, no, no, there's a big difference between Luther and, and what we're trying to do. Uh, first of all, Luther was uh, a person that left with a nun, married with a nun, and boasted about how many times he committed the sins of impurity throughout the week in letters. Luther is a person that spoke filth of Moses, that spoke blasphemously of our Lord Jesus Christ. So don't give me Luther, uh, and don't compare me to that. Um, what's the big difference? Uh, besides that, I hope. Uh, the big difference is that Luther opposed what the church taught by his own whims, and just coming up with new teachings. What we're trying to do, those of us who are resisting the Vatican today, what we're trying to do is we're trying to obey the church teachings from the past. They are the innovators. Rome, Vatican, all those people that are coming up with these new things and teachings, they are innovating. They are the ones celebrating Luther. We are the ones that are saying, uh, no, that's not tradition, that's not in Holy Scripture. So I'm not going to follow. I'm going to follow the revelation of God. What's in tradition and in Holy Scripture. Why is the principle of Luther, sola scriptura, why is that untenable? Why is that even absurd and ridiculous? Well, if you've been to one of our high schools, skip through this, you know it already. Uh, if you haven't, perhaps you, you might find this, is, this interesting. Consider, first of all, my Lutheran or Protestant friend that listened to this. There's like one guy, probably. Uh, consider this. Uh, the Catholic faith started at the ascension of our Lord, even before that. And throughout the two days of the ascension of our Lord, there were already 8,000, or rather, two days after the, the coming of the Holy Ghost, there were already about 8,000 Catholics. A few years later, you had already thousands of Catholics all over the Mediterranean, in Rome, in, in uh, Antioch, in Jerusalem, in Greece, everywhere. 
The truth is, for the first century, there were already many Catholics all, all throughout the world, but the Bible wasn't even finished. The first Gospels were written around the year 60, around that time. The Apocalypse, the last book of the Bible, was finished around the year 95. 95. So that means that for over 60 years, the Bible wasn't even finished. Most people didn't have access to all of the Bible. And yet there were thousands of Catholics. So, sola scriptura, how do you explain this? Do all these people then didn't have the faith? They didn't have access to the revelation? Yet they were, they were Christians? You see that sola scriptura makes no sense there. But let's go even further than that. For the first 15 centuries of uh, Christendom, uh, books were very rare. Remember that the first, we did, they didn't have laser, print, laser printers or, you know, whatever kind of printers to print a bunch of books like this. And they couldn't be sending books to other countries like Protestants do today. The first printer was not invented until 1496, I think, it was somewhere around there. The 15th century, Gutenberg. And the first book that was printed was the Gutenberg Bible. And so, before that, Bibles were very, very rare. They were actually a luxury. Uh, they were quite a, quite a thing to have as a rich man. Uh, there's a story about this of the Desert Fathers, where there was this monk who had a Bible. And another monk comes. And the Bible was such a treasure, it was so valuable, it was like having a car, that this monk was tempted to steal it, and he stole it. And the other monk, being so holy, he didn't say anything, he just let him go. And the story is that the other monk repented from that and brought the Bible back. And the monk said, oh, I don't need it, don't worry. Um, but the point is, books were, were very rare. Back in that day, books would, had to be written by hand. And so, very, very, very few people have Bibles. Barely anyone. And many people didn't even know how to read. For 15 centuries. Did they not have access to Revelation? How did they learn Revelation? Were they not Catholic? Were they not Christians? Sola Scriptura, you have no reply to that. Uh, what about, for example, the people from the Slavic countries? Uh, you have the St. Cyril and Methodius, the, the saints that went in there, tried to preach the gospel. They didn't have an alphabet. I'm not saying they didn't know how to read. They didn't even have an alphabet. Sola Scriptura, how? So you see that it makes no sense. There's no way you can hold that up. But then again, the argument that every Catholic will give and, and every Catholic should know is this. A Protestant friend, you who has the King James Bible, uh, where do you get these books from the Bible? Who told you what books are these? Who told you which books are revealed by God? Did God come down from heaven to show it to you? No. Tradition told you that. It was the church the Bible, uh, it was a church that gave you the Bible through tradition only like three, 300 years after our Lord Jesus Christ. And so even the Bible that you have, Protestant, that you say, Sola Scriptura, where did you get this Bible? Oh, the church gave it to me. The Catholic Church gave it to me. And they, through tradition, they defined which books I'm supposed to read as the Bible. Otherwise, I would not know. Because there are like 20 apocryphal, apocryphal Gospels. 
There are also like 30 or 40 apocryphal uh, epistles. There are all kinds of apocryphal books, hundreds of them. How would you even know which ones is, are revealed by God? The, the shepherd of Hermas, for example, was held as revealed by many people. But it was the Catholic Church that through tradition came and gave you these are the books of the Bible. And you hold it to that. You believe it. So even if you deny it, you actually believe tradition and you hold by it. So la Scriptura just makes no sense and it's, it's untenable. It's just absurd. It's impossible to hold it at all. Okay, having said that, uh, we're going to go ahead and read some of the comments that we received in the last video. I hope this, you find this interesting, but some of these are really actually uh, quite worthy of comment or, or, or an answer. One of the comments that we received, and the person actually deleted it afterwards, was um, we were talking about how the Vatican is accepting the baptism of transgender people. And this comment says, uh, don't be intransigent. You know, you are intransigent. How, how can you? Well, what about a person that, for example, uh, goes through the surgeries and then repents? They can't help that. They can't uh, undo it. So why shouldn't they be baptized? The answer to that is very simple. Uh, you know it. I know it. Everybody knows it. That has never been an issue in the Catholic Church. If a person comes to me and they did that surgery, but they're dressed as they're supposed to dress, if it's a man, a man, if it's a woman, as a woman, well, there's no problem. You can be baptized. Of course you can. Because you're a person that did mistakes in the past, but you're repenting now. But the, the main point is this. Uh, we have to be very clear in the words that we use and not be equivocal. Modernists, communists, uh, they use equivocal verses and or phrases and, and sentences and, and speech in order to bring in their infiltration and their evil doctrines and cause confusion. We should avoid that. Everybody knows that when you say the word transgender here, you're talking about a person that at that time professes to be someone of the opposite sex. It's a person that being a man says that he's a woman. Or being a woman says that she's a man. And I had a little bit of a uh, difficult trait there with the pronouns. But that's, that's a transgender. That's what we all know that they mean. And the Vatican knows that. The Vatican knows that very well. And when they make this document, that's what they're talking about. They're talking about someone that at that time professes that error to speak against who they are. So, but if they repent and they come over repented, of course, there's no problem for baptism. And for that, there's no need of any legislation or clarification. Of course, that can be done. As with any other sin that we commit and we repent from it. Okay, uh, on these same lines, there is another commenter, uh, Leslie... Uh, well, Silbornicent is her name. She says, what is, actually no, the comment is from, is from Alfredo 4970. And he says, the problem is that throughout time, the times and the generational changes, the church requires to approach those who want to ask for her help and there is no Catholic legislation to give an answer. Hence, you have some questions in the current times. For example, what would happen if uh, 
transgender person who has taken hormones, who has been operated, would like to, to, for, to become part of the people of God, obviously having repented from their sin. Well, I've answered that already. Uh, next, he says, What would happen if himself or the adoptive children of a civil union of two gay people uh, wanted to be baptized? You know, what if uh, I'm a 20-year-old guy and I want to be baptized and my parents, quote-unquote, are two people from the same sex, you know, two gay people. What about that? So there is no legislation for that, he says. Well, I'll, I'll reply to that as well. Of course, theoretically, there should be no problem. And that requires no legislation and no priest has questions about what to do in that case. If a person with the use of reason comes to me and he says, well, I want to be baptized, but I was adopted by two men or two women, but now I want to be Catholic, I want to be baptized. There's no question, no problem. He has the use of reason, he has the power to become Catholic. Important note to make, though. If he says to me, well, I'm going to bring uh, my parents, quote-unquote, and they're going to be here hugging and kissing hands and kissing each other and whatever, then I have to say, uh, no, that cannot happen. Why not? Because that's a sin. And I cannot allow that sin to happen here in my presence in the house of God, giving bad example and a scandal to everyone. Now, to perhaps to this user and many of the people listening, this might seem harsh. It's like, wow, the, why, why, you know, being so harsh? That's precisely the problem that we have in the Catholic faith nowadays. And that's precisely what's causing so much error, that people are actually being uh, desensitized about these things. And many people actually start believing what they are told, that these are not sins. But why do I say no? Because you cannot accept a sin to happen in your very eyes and accept it. And he, let me give you an example. If I were to accept that, it would be like if someone comes and says to me, hey, we're going to bring a, a couple of people and they're going to commit impurities here in the church. Oh, be accepting. Of course not. No, you're not doing that. Or I'm going to bring so-and-so and he's going to kill someone here in the church. Be accepting of, acceptant of that. No, because there are sins. The same thing applies here. So yes, you can be baptized, but obviously that doesn't mean that I can accept the relationship that these two men or two women had, which you unfortunately had to deal with, uh, because it's a sin. It's a public sin. It's a scandal. That's the main thing about it. So about these things, yeah, Alfredo, uh, there's no questions about those kind of issues. Now, there is another comment that we have. This one is from Leslie. She says, and these are the kind of comments in Spanish that just brighten up your day. Uh, she says, uh, you're harming the church. You're very despective. Um, listen, Jesus accepted Judas. He shared his bread with Judas. He washed Judas' feet. And that doesn't mean that he was agreeing with his evil. The truth is we have to remove all these labels that are bandages of love or rather bandages to love. And they are disguised as sin because it causes a lot of harm. That's Leslie 1839 that says that. And Leslie, you're not watching this video probably because it's in English, but it's, it's, a, good, it's a comment that is good to answer to. Let's begin by the, the Judas and our Lord, uh, the claim regarding our Lord accepting Judas. Our Lord kept Judas next to him all throughout, uh, as, as far as he could, 
and he accepted him to be there in order to convert him. He never accepted his sin. He never went to Judas and said, hey, what you're doing is very good. And I accept, to accept you with all your sins and whatever you do. You're good. You're here. Come to me. No. Our Lord had Judas next to him with the explicit purpose of converting him till the very last. Even when, he, when Judas kissed him, the only reason why our Lord took that was to fulfill the prophecies, prophecies first of all, but second, to try to convert him. And, you know, Leslie, it's really funny that you make this comment here. And uh, <laughs> it's kind of funny that I had to take the comments from the Spanish videos. Uh, but here's the thing about this part. Our Lord, on that night, that same night that you say he washed the feet of, the feet of Judas, what did he say? He said to his apostles, Amen, amen, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Calling out the sin right there. And what else does he say? It was better, woe to the man for whose cause the Son of Man is sold, betrayed. It was better for that man not to be born. It was better for that man not to be born. You think I'm harsh? Imagine if I go to a person that is, you know, in the LGBT cult, which I pity them, really, they, they really... It's terrible what they're going through in being deceived like that. But uh, imagine that I go to someone like that and I told them it was better for you not to be born. <laughs> Holy cow. I mean, what kind of comments I would get? That's what our Lord said to Judas. It was better for you not to be born. And he said that out of love to try to convert him. The whole reason why he was there with him was in order to convert him. And that's my point. Will I talk to someone that is in that cult? Will I talk to someone that identifies as transgender or homosexual or whatever? I will talk to them all the time. Uh, definitely. Without causing scandal. But why? To convert them. Never to tell them that what they're doing is fine. That they don't need to do anything to go to heaven. I'll tell them you need to change that to go to heaven. And that's the whole point of it. Okay, another comment. Well, I'll, I'll leave it at that for today. I think we have plenty of time already covered, but um, I do want to say something that is very important. As I see the comments in, in Spanish, in the video in Spanish, is like, that's, uh, that's heavy on your soul. I must say that. It's, it's, it's a bad way to start your day. Uh, and I think it's, here's something, a note that I want to have make for the people that use Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, whatever. It's so important not to be sarcastic and... Um, aggressive and corrosive, I would even say, in your comments. Uh, you should never use names, name-calling. You should never be insulting people or, or treating people poorly in comments. Keep it to the point. Control your passions and say the, the facts as they are. Give the arguments if they're reasonable, and that's it. You don't help truth if you're sarcastic. You don't help truth if you're using it as, as a political outlet basically where you know you're arguing as if you were arguing about the president being bad no these are things where we always have to have charity clarity yes softness not always but charity always even if you're being strong in your comments which you have to be 
You know, nowadays we need people that are strong in their stance. But that doesn't mean that we are not charitable. That doesn't mean that we have to be sarcastic. Strength is shown in the control of one's emotions, in the laying of the truth unwillingly, uh, without yielding. But there's no need for you to, to become aggressive to someone. It's simply state the truth as it is. So in the comments, you always see these people that do those kind of things. And that leads us to our quote from the day, uh, which uh, this is uh, simply world culture. It's not a religious quote, but I think it's still useful. And this is going to be from Mark Twain. Mark Twain says, A man's character may be learned from the adjectives which he habitually uses in conversation. A man's character may be learned from the adjectives which he habitually uses in conversations. So, this is a very good quote. What it's saying is, when you are talking to someone and they uh, come up with all kinds of uh, nicknames for other people, that tells you who that person is and what his character is. You know, if he's like, oh, this bit, the guy that they did bit, and, this, and he's a bit, but bit. Okay. <laughs> Father, don't do that. Well, that tells you something. That tells you that the, what his person, what he's saying, uh, that's kind of like the portrayal of his character. On the other hand, if you see a person that has a very clean tongue, that is respectful, that is not sarcastic, as I was just saying in the comments, um, well, you see that this person has a good temperament, a good control of his of his self. He has a hold of his self. So, very good quote by Mark Twain. I think we have covered a lot today, but we will go ahead and finish this show by praying uh, indulgence prayer. I'm just going to open it at random, but let's pray something that is going to make us today come out of this program with some time less in purgatory. And I will say this prayer over here. Hey, it's for the faithful departed. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Remember to repeat after me so that you can gain the indulgence. O Lord Jesus Christ, King of glory, deliver the souls of all the faithful departed from the pains of hell and from the bottomless pit. Deliver them out of the lion's mouth, lest hell should swallow them up, lest they fall into the outer darkness. But let thy standard bearer, St. Michael, Bring them back into thy holy light, which thou didst promise of old to Abraham and to his seed. Taken from the Roman Missal, it's an indulgence of three years, a plenary indulgence once a month on the usual conditions. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. This is Father Carlos Apeda, and you've been listening to The Catholic Wire. God bless you.